Amen and amen. Thank you, Grant. And uh, why don't you take your seats? So good to have you joining us again. If you are from somewhere outside of Durban, once again, it will be great if you just let us know. You can post it if you're on Facebook or give us an amen if you're in the Amans and Toady area. It's so good to have you with us. I'm in my suit today. Now, I'm not quite going for the televangelist look just yet, but um, when I was an attorney, I used to call these my overalls. My suits were my overalls. So because of what we're looking at today, I thought I'd put on one of the old overalls because we, in a sense, almost like going back into the courtroom. We're going to be investigating the evidence today for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the title of my message is, in fact, The Resurrection of Jesus, Fact or Fiction. So that's what we're going to be looking at. Now, as we get on to business, I think I'm going to take my jacket off so that you can see me a little bit better. And so I'll stay a bit cooler. So I'm just handing it to my lovely assistant. Thank you, babe. There we go. Um, and let's, let's begin. So here we go. The fact that Jesus existed in history isn't seriously disputed today. So Bart Ehrman writes this. He says, Jesus existed and those vocal persons who deny it do so not because they have considered the evidence with the unbiased eye of the historian, but because they have some other agenda that this denial serves. So Jesus lived and he died. But we're, of course, looking today at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And uh, we could ask ourselves this question, just how important is Jesus' resurrection? Well, if you're a Christian, you're going to say it's very important. But I want to say today that even as Christians, I think we often don't realize just how big Jesus' re resurrection really is. The whole Christian faith is tied to it. And so Paul writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 14 to 19. He says, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God. For we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But He did not raise Him if in fact the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who, are, who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Look at what Paul says here. He says, if Jesus hasn't been raised to life, then his preaching and all preaching is useless. What I'm doing right now is useless and futile. Our faith is useless and futile. We'd still be lost in our sins. And thirdly, he says, we are to be pitied more than all men. If the only hope we have was for this lifetime here on earth, we're to be pitied more than anyone else on the planet right now. It's pretty big. H.P. Lydon said this, he said, faith in the resurrection is the very keystone of the arch of Christian faith. And when it is removed, all must inevitably crumble into ruin. In other words, if the resurrection collapses, the Christian faith collapses with it. That's how important, friends, the resurrection is. Massively important topic. So why don't you turn with me to Mark chapter 15. We're going to be looking at one of the gospel accounts of Jesus' death, his burial, and resurrection. We're going to read from Mark 15. Verse 33 to chapter 16, verse 8. I'm reading from the latest version of the NIV. So let's go from verse 33. At noon, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. Someone ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. 
The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. Pilate was surprised to hear that he was already dead. Summoning the centurion, he asked him if Jesus had already died. When he learned from the centurion that it was so, he gave the body to Joseph. So Joseph brought some linen cloth, took down the body, wrapped it in the linen, and placed it in a tomb, cut out of rock. Then he rolled a stone across the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of Joseph saw where he was laid. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome brought spices so that they might go to anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe, sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. If we look at this as one of the four gospel accounts and looking at them even together too, I want to make some initial comments about them to you. So if four witnesses had to give evidence in a court of law and their evidence was identical, they said the same thing word for word, it would arouse your suspicions. You'd think that they got together, come up with a story, memorized it, and then recited it, learned, recited what they'd learned off by heart. Okay? So if we carefully examine, examine the four gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we put them side by side, we compare them. What we find is a wonderful harmony. Okay? There are no major contradictions. There's some little inconsistencies, but these can be easily explained away. And very importantly, there's not this word for word parrot fashion repetition that would cause us to believe that they had been it was a story that someone had come up with and they just all learned off by heart so there's authenticity there secondly there's something else that strengthens the credibility of these gospel accounts and that is the fact that the first witnesses on site at the tomb were women now ladies please don't be insulted or offended but back in those times the testimony of women really didn't count for much in fact Dr. William Lane Craig explains it like this. He said, women's testimony was regarded as so worthless that they weren't even allowed to serve as witnesses in a Jewish court of law. In light of this, it's absolutely remarkable that the chief witnesses to the empty tomb are these women. Okay, so once again, if the resurrection of Jesus was just a story that his followers had come up with, that they concocted, one would have expected them to make the first witnesses to the empty tomb a bunch of men, like Jesus' disciples. The fact that they are women, even though that's potentially embarrassing back in those times, proves to us that the Bible is just accurately recording and telling the story as it actually took place. All right? In short, 
the four gospel accounts present very reliable, accurate evidence about the death and the resurrection of Jesus. All right, now, before we proceed to look at the evidence, I want to say to you that there are very few people who seriously dispute that Jesus died on the cross. Um, so in other words, even the opponents of the early church, they never try to contend that he somehow managed to survive the cross. Okay, People who were around at that time, they knew, they'd seen that Jesus had died a violent, brutal death on the cross. It wasn't until about the 18th century that some people decided to challenge this. And they came up with what is called the swoon theory. What the swoon theory says is that Jesus swooned. He fainted. He passed out on the cross from pain and exhaustion, etc. And uh, he was then taken down, put in the tomb. And in the tomb, he woke up and he managed to get out, get past everyone and carry on with his life. Okay, now to call the swoon theory utterly ridiculous would be a compliment. Okay, there are so many problems with it. Now, I don't want to devote too much time to this, but let me just give you a few points to consider around this. Okay, think about the torture that Jesus went through before the cross. Then he endured crucifixion. He had a spear thrust into his side. After all of this, somehow he manages to fool Roman executioners and Joseph Arimathea and Nicodemus that he, he was fully dead. Okay, They bury him. He survives for more than 36 hours in a cold tomb with no medical attention, no food, no water. Okay, Then somehow he wakes up. He manages to get himself out of grave clothes with something like 34 kilograms of embalming spices in them. Gets out of that, strides up to the stone from the inside, somehow manages to roll that large stone away. And then gets past the Roman guards. Okay, And get this, he presents himself to his disciples looking so amazing that they think he has a new resurrected body. Okay, Once again, it's ridiculous. We don't need to spend too much time on it. Let's leave the swoon theory behind us. And move on. Amen. All right. So here's the thing. Jesus died on the cross and he was then buried in the tomb. Okay. So as we look at it now, we're going to divide the evidence under two broad categories. We're going to look at the empty tomb and then we're going to look at the eyewitness account. So let's begin with the empty tomb. Josh McDowell said this. All but four of the world's major religions are based on mere philosophical propositions. Of the four that are based on personalities rather than a philosophical system, only Christianity claims an empty tomb for its founder. And we know this to be true. There's no tomb that we can visit where we can go and see the remains of Jesus Christ. So how do we account for the empty tomb? One of the theories that was put forward to try and explain it is what's called the wrong tomb theory. And what this theory suggests is that the women, the first witnesses on site, mistakenly in their distress and in the dim early light of the morning, they made their way to the wrong tomb found it empty, and then spread the word that Jesus was raised to life. Well, there are some obvious problems with that. Problem number one is, as we read in verse 47, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, saw where Jesus was laid. They knew where to go. Okay, But an even bigger problem is that everyone else, after these women, would also have had to go to the wrong tomb. The authorities would surely have gone and checked it out. Remember, there were Roman gods positioned there, okay? Joseph of Arimathea, he knew which tomb belonged to him. Surely he would have gone and had a look for himself. So as you can see, it is highly unlikely and improbable that everyone would have gone to the wrong tomb and ignored the tomb where Jesus was really still buried. Okay, So that one we can dismiss as well. So we have Jesus dying on the cross, buried in the tomb, and three days later we find the tomb empty. How do we explain this? Well, 
there are actually only two broad kind of explanations that could be put forward. Number one, this was the work of God. And number two, it was the work of man. So let's begin with number two, okay? If we're saying this was the work of man, who could it have been? And of course, the official explanation that the religious leaders put forward was that it was Jesus' disciples. And we read this in Matthew 28, verses 11 to 15. While the women were on their way, some of the guards went into the city and reported to the chief priests everything that had happened. When the chief priests had met with the elders and devised a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money, telling them, You are to say his disciples came during the night and stole him away while we were asleep. If this report gets to the governor, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So the soldiers took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been widely circulated among the Jews to this very day. All right. Some major problems with this official explanation. So remember that the, the religious leaders, they wanted to make sure that the tomb was really secure. And so they took and placed Roman soldiers on guard outside. Now the Roman army had very strict discipline and there was severe punishment for guards who fell asleep on duty. Uh, there are even historic, historical accounts of guards being put to death if they were caught asleep on duty. Okay, so the chance of one guard falling asleep, possible, maybe, okay? But all of these guards falling asleep together, extremely unlikely, okay? And get this, even if they were asleep, the disciples or other grave robbers would have had to come in the night with torches. They would have made a noise. They had to move the heavy, large stone from in front of the tomb. The chances of all of the gods sleeping through that noise, extremely unlikely, okay? And even something like this in John chapter 20, verses 6 and 7, we read that the grave clothes of Jesus were left behind. Why on earth would the disciples have unwrapped him first, left those behind, wasted time whilst they were removing the body, okay? So that's some of the problems. Those are some of the problems with the official explanation. But there's another fatal flaw in the account that these soldiers were bribed to tell. And it's this. It would be easily exposed on cross-examination. Okay, gods? So you fell asleep on duty. Yes, we did. And while you were sleeping, the disciples of Jesus came and stole his body away. Yes, they did. Okay, so tell us, how do you know it was the disciples when you were whilst asleep? It's not like they had surveillance cameras recording the whole episode. There was no fingerprint or DNA evidence that could be led. So in short, sleeping people can't positively identify thieves. Okay, so we can see some of the obvious problems with the official account. But if it wasn't the disciples or other grave robbers, who else could it have been? Well, how about the Romans or the religious leaders themselves? First question is, why would they have done that? But the more important question is, why would they have kept the body of Jesus hidden from the rest of the world? Think about this. As the early church was beginning to grow and expand, the easiest thing for the religious leaders or the Romans to do would have been to produce the body of Jesus and say, hey guys, April Fool, it was us. We hid the body away. We just wanted to wait and to show you what a fraud this was, this whole Christian thing, this thing about Jesus the Messiah. They never did that. They would have if they could, but they never did that because they also never had the remains of Jesus. So friends, it's extremely improbable that any person or persons could have moved the body of Jesus, which leaves us with a staggering conclusion, even though it might be so hard for some to believe. But the only possible explanation for the empty grave is that it's number one, the work of God. This was the power of God going in, raising Jesus to life, exactly as Jesus had said would happen. So the evidence of the empty tomb is powerful evidence, even standing on its own. But we don't end it. There's more. 
We're going to move on now to look at the eyewitness accounts to those who saw with their own eyes the resurrected Jesus Christ. Now in court, eyewitness testimony is amongst the strongest evidence that you can lead. And especially if you have a number of witnesses who are credible and they are consistent in what they're saying. And as we look at the Bible accounts, we find multiple testimonies and accounts of those who witnessed Jesus with their own eyes. They saw him, they touched him, they spoke to him, and he spoke to them. Let's look at this uh, summary of the witnesses in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 3 to 8. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. That's Paul writing there. Okay? That is one heck of a long list of witnesses. You know, if you're in, in a lawsuit and you find out you've got that many witnesses coming against you, especially credible, consistent witnesses, well, you're going to be looking to wave the white flag, settle as quickly as possible. Okay? It's one large list of witnesses. Now, we read this of the resurrected Jesus himself in Acts chapter 1, verse 3. It says, After his suffering, he showed himself to these men and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. So get this. Don't miss it. Jesus wanted his disciples to be convinced that he was alive, that he had risen from the grave. And if you look at their preaching and their testimonies of Jesus, this fact this conviction that he was alive forms an integral part of what they were saying. So many examples I can give. Just here are a few of them. This is Peter in Acts 3 verse 15. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. We are witnesses of this. Acts 4 verse 33. With great power, the apostles continue to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Acts chapter 5 verse 29 to 32. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging him on a cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. Okay? You have this bunch of witnesses all saying the same thing, that Jesus Christ was raised from the grave, and they've seen this with their own eyes. Okay, so now, if you... Or on the other side, you're trying to oppose this. You've got all these eyewitnesses coming against you. What do you do? Well, you've got to try to discredit them. You've got to try to um, attack them in some way that people can't place any weight on what they're saying. Okay? To try and destroy or at least question their credibility. So one of the attempts to discredit the eyewitness accounts is what's called the hallucination theory. And this theory says basically that all of the post-resurrection appearance of Jesus were people thinking they were seeing him, but they weren't. They were all just hallucinating. Now, it sounds quite clever, okay? But it does come unstuck with regards to our medical understanding. And Josh McDowell notes this. He says, It isn't plausible because it contradicts certain laws and principles to which psychiatrists say visions must conform. So here are just two examples of some of those contradictions. Okay, number one, only particular kinds of persons have hallucinations. And not every one of the people mentioned in the Bible would fit the profile of the kind of person who would have hallucinations. Second one's even bigger. Since hallucinations are very individualistic and extremely subjective, 
it is highly unlikely that two people would have identical hallucinations at the same time. And it's extremely unlikely and against all probabilities that a whole group of people, 500 on one occasion, would all together have these identical hallucinations at the same time. So once again, this theory falls short according to the laws of common medicine. And a similar thing could be said of, of saying that the disciples were mental, that they were deranged, they were mad. Again, one or two of them might have been, but you can't say that this entire group were all mad and that in their insanity together, they managed to come up with this cohesive story. It also is incredibly unlikely. And both the hallucination theory and saying that they were mad also can't explain away the empty two. Okay. Now, here's the thing. What if all of the followers of Jesus were lying? They were fraudsters. So in other words, this is one theory or, or challenge that you could put forward that could explain both the empty tomb and the eyewitness accounts. Is to say this, that the disciples of Jesus colluded together. They somehow managed to get in and steal his body, hide the body away, and then go around the world saying that he'd risen from the grave and that they were eyewitnesses too. So it would be the greatest fraud of all time. It's the one thing that can try and explain both the empty tomb and the fact that there were these eyewitnesses. Well, 2,000 years later, we obviously can't call the disciples forward and all these witnesses and put them in the witness box. But we can look at the biblical accounts and test it even with the laws of evidence. And if you do that, you'll find that what they said stands up very well under the laws of evidence. But there's something else. There's another reason why we can have confidence that they weren't lying. And this is it. Right. As far as we know, to the best of our understanding, 11 out of the 12 disciples, the apostles, were put to death. They were executed or martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm including Matthias, who replaced Judas Iscariot. They suffered extremely brutal and awful persecutions and deaths for their faith. Some of them were even crucified themselves. The only one to escape it, to die of old age, was John, John the Beloved. And even then, apparently the Romans actually had a go at executing him too, but they were unsuccessful. All right, now here's the thing. Even today, tragically, there are Christians all over the world who are being martyred for their faith in Jesus Christ. And to be fair, there are people of other religions who'd also be prepared to die for what they believe in. But when we look at modern day martyrs, we recognize that these are people who have faith or beliefs that is based upon something that has been passed on to them from another source. It's something that has been taught to them, something that they might have read for themselves, but it's something that has been passed on to them that they then believe. That's where this original group are completely different. Okay, They weren't basing this on beliefs that had been passed on to them from someone else. No, friends, they were the original source themselves. It wasn't just something they believed, it was what they had seen with their own eyes. They had seen Jesus. They had touched Jesus. They had heard Jesus speak to them with his own voice. These were the original sources themselves. And this is the thing. Someone might very well be willing to die for something which they believe to be true. Now, it might not be true. They might not know that, but they would be willing to die for something that they are convinced is true. But here's the thing we know. Human nature won't permit us to suffer and die for something that we know is a fraud, that we know to be a lie. It's highly improbable, extremely, incredibly unlikely that these disciples would have been willing to suffer and die as they did for something that they knew was a fraud. Why would they have done that? What did they have to gain? They had everything to lose instead. And so I want to tell you that it wouldn't have been long before one of them would have cracked under pressure. One of them said, oh, wait, wait, stop, stop, stop. I'll tell you the truth. This is all a lie. It's all a scam. Save me. Let me live. Don't torture me. I'll turn state witness. 
I'll expose the fraud. But that never happened. Not one of these men stood up and said, hang on, this is a lie. It's a fraud. They suffered. They died terrible deaths because they were convinced of what they'd seen. Not what had been passed on them, but they'd seen with their very own eyes. They were convinced that Jesus Christ was alive. And I've just been speaking to you about the 12. What about all the others? Hundreds of other witnesses. You better believe that some of them would also face terrible persecution for what they believed. Friends, I want to say to you today that it is utterly improbable that all of these people would have been fraudsters and liars who would have been willing to go to the grave, suffer terrible deaths for what they were saying was the truth, what they knew even to be true. Okay? And so what we find is that their testimony and the way they conducted themselves, even in the face of terrible persecution, provides compelling evidence that what they said was true. These guys make fantastic witnesses. Amen. They really, really do. And so we are left with this stunning conclusion. The empty grave is empty because God emptied it. He raised His only begotten Son to life. And these witnesses who were willing, and in fact many of them did suffer terrible deaths for what they believed, they were willing to do it because they knew that what they believed was true because they had seen Jesus, they had touched Jesus, they had heard Jesus speak to them. They knew beyond a shadow of doubt that the King of Kings was truly alive. What an incredible thing. Now, you might not be a follower of Jesus today. You're listening to this and you're thinking, Yo, you're going through quite a bit here. And uh, you, it might still sound a bit too good to be true. So kind of as a little aside, I want you to think about some other people who have weighed the evidence for themselves, considered it. And, and some of them were atheists too, I might add. Let me just give you a few examples. Simon Greenleaf. He was one of the founders of the Harvard Law School. And in 1842, he wrote a treatise on the law of evidence, which in the United States is still considered the single greatest authority on evidence in the entire literature of legal procedure. So remember, he was an authority on the law of evidence. Okay, so he later wrote this. He said, let the gospel's testimony be sifted as if it were given in a court of justice on the side of the adverse party. The witness being subject to rigorous cross-examination the result, it is confidently believed, will be an undoubting conviction of their integrity, ability, and truth. I've got a little tongue tied. Let me explain it. What he's saying is that if you took the gospel accounts, okay, put them in the witness box, cross-examined them using the laws of evidence, they would stand up. They would have undoubting conviction, you would have, of their integrity, their ability, and truth. In short, he's saying, using the laws of evidence, he found the gospel's testimony to be true. Frank Morrison, he was a young British lawyer in the 1930s who decided that he was going to be the one to expose this great fraud. And um, especially of the resurrection story in particular, he would show the world that it wasn't true. So he set out, he thoroughly examined the evidence and something remarkable happened. The first chapter of his book, Who Moved the Stone, is entitled The Book That Refused to Be Written. Because rather than writing a book opposing and disproving the resurrection he wrote a book supporting it you see as he was weighing up and studying the the evidence he became convinced almost against his will that jesus truly had risen from the grave that was frank morrison lee strobel was educated at yale in the u.s he became an award-winning journalist who specialized in courtroom analysis okay so he was an atheist and after his wife came to faith he also decided he was going to be the one to expose the fraud and he said about examining the evidence and yes you guessed it after carefully examining the evidence lee strobel came to faith in jesus christ and he went on to write the book award-winning book called the case for christ then there's sir lionel laku laku okay 
He was quite an incredible lawyer. He almost never lost a case, and the handful of cases that he lost were usually overturned in favor of his client when they were taken on appeal. The Guinness Book of World Records recorded him as being one of the world's most successful advocates. This great trial lawyer said this, to which, may I humbly add, I've spent more than 42 years as a defense trial lawyer, appearing in many parts of the world and am still in active practice. I have been fortunate to secure a number of successes in jury trials, and I say unequivocally the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ is so overwhelming that it compels acceptance by proof which leaves absolutely no room for doubt. My friends, how strong is the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Overwhelmingly strong. Okay? In fact, you could build such a strong case for the resurrection that in the words of Lord Darling, former Chief Justice of England, no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection story is true. Wow. Okay? Amazing. If you're a follower of Jesus, why is this overwhelmingly strong evidence for the resurrection so important for you and for me? Well, remember we spoke earlier about that art of Christianity? The keystone of the resurrection remains firmly in place. In other words, Christianity doesn't fall. It stands even stronger with this keystone of the resurrection strongly and firmly and securely in place. The thing is this, if someone had to come to me and say, oh, how can you believe in Jesus? There's a number of parts that I put forward in, in answer to that, but one of the important things is because the evidence supports it. The evidence supports the life, the death, and the resurrection, especially of Jesus Christ. Friends, this is not some wishy-washy, hopeful, airy-fairy faith that we have. The life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus are historical facts beyond dispute. I believe that, really I do. And so to every believer watching today, I hope this message encourages you. I hope it even boosts your faith in Jesus Christ. The same power that emptied the grave of Jesus will one day empty the grave of every single person who has died in Christ with faith in Jesus Christ. What a wonderful, glorious hope we have. Amen. You can amen that wherever you are. Now, listen carefully to this. The evidence for the resurrection strengthens our faith. But hear me carefully when I say this now. Even if this evidence wasn't there, I would still believe. Why do I say that? Because, friends, I have met the resurrection himself. Okay, let me explain that to you. So, Warren Wesley said something to this effect. He said, Jesus took the doctrine of the resurrection out of the book, out of the Bible, and he put it in a person himself. Remember Jesus said to Martha in John chapter 11, verse 25, he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. You see, the resurrection is more than a doctrine in the Bible. It's even more than an historical fact. The resurrection is a person. His name is Jesus Christ. And I've come to know the resurrection for myself. And I know this, friends, that through Jesus, I've come to know God the Father. I've come to experience the love of the Father. I've come to have a relationship with God the Father. I hope that's true of you today as you watch this. And perhaps just to say that you might be an atheist. You might be an agnostic who's watching this. Today. I'm so glad that you are watching. And I want to say to you that even after I've shared this, you might still be skeptical. You might still not be willing to accept this. And my goal today isn't to force something upon you. But I do want to ask you to do this. Back a couple of things. Okay. I'd ask you to take off any lenses of personal bias that you might have and to go and do what those lawyers and the journalists did. Go and objectively weigh the evidence for yourself. Objectively weigh the evidence, especially the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. And while you're doing that, even if you don't believe in God, why don't you just pray this prayer? Say, Jesus Christ, if you're real, Reveal yourself to me. What have you got to lose? Okay. On the other hand, you might be someone who's never followed Jesus. But today, 
there's a conviction in your heart. It's actually more than what I've shared here today. It's something in your heart of hearts that you're recognizing to be true. You are seeing Jesus as the resurrection of life. You are seeing that your only hope to get to God the Father, everlasting life with God, is through Jesus the Son. If you're in that place today, in a moment, I want to pray with you. And can I say to you, there could be some folk today who, perhaps a bit more like the prodigal son, you have walked with God, you have walked with Jesus, but you find you've wandered away. It feels like you've left, you've gone to a distant land, and today you want to turn and come home to the Father's house. You want to make right with God. So if that's you, in fact, I want to pray with you right now. So can we bow our heads? And if you today are saying, I want to make right with God, would you pray this prayer with me and would you agree and mean it with all of your heart? Let's call on him together and say, Jesus Christ, I believe that you lived, that you died in my place and that you rose again. I declare, Jesus, that you are the resurrection and the life. Today, Jesus Christ, I call on your name to save me. I confess, God, that I've sinned against you. I ask you today to forgive me for all of my sins. I surrender my life to you, Jesus, as my Savior and my Lord. I turn from the life I've been living to follow you. And I ask you now, God, to help me. Fill me with your spirit. Open your Bible to me. Give me grace every day that I'll follow Jesus all the way into eternity. I pray this now and ask it in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen and amen. If you prayed that prayer today, amen. We'd love to hear from you if you did. Or make sure you tell someone who you know is a Christian. We really need for you to be joining and linking into a local church where you can grow and move forward in your faith in Jesus Christ. But I'd also like to pray for every believer today as we watch this together. So can we bow our heads again and let's pray and say, Jesus Christ, we stand before you in awe. And in fact, Lord, we want to thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We want to thank you for doing what you promised you would do. You overcame death itself. You beat the grave on that third day. And Lord, we just celebrate today. We are amazed at this profound, incredible victory that you've won. Thank you for the significance for us. Thank you that your empty grave, Jesus, means that one day every person who has died in Christ, faith in Christ, will also leave empty graves behind him. Thank you for the glorious hope that we have, the everlasting hope that we too will overcome death and have life everlasting in resurrected bodies with you forever. Thank you, Lord. But now, Lord, we recognize too that this isn't just a hope for eternity as much as that's vitally important, as huge as that is, but this is a hope for now. This isn't just a victory for the future one day. This is a victory for now. Jesus, if you could overcome death itself, there is nothing in this world that you cannot overcome. And even now, Lord, in this world we're living in, just with the uncertainties, just with the COVID virus, Lord, just with the risks to health and to life, with economic uncertainties before us, Lord, we are certain of this. The resurrection and the life is with us. Your victory isn't just for then, it's for now. And so we stand confidently today, declaring that our trust is in you, resurrection and life. Our trust is in you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, that you make a way. Thank you that you help us. Thank you that you lead us. Thank you that your victory will be seen in our lives as we lean into you. And trust you with all of our hearts. We pray this today. We thank you for this today. In Jesus' mighty, mighty name. Thank you, Lord. We agree together. So, friends, in just a moment, it'd be great if you stay. If you're on Facebook, leave a few comments with us. Have some coffee afterwards if you like as well. That'll be great. And um, we're also going to have, as we have been doing, have a, right at the end now, our bank details and the QR code if you'd like to give. Thank you so much. 
wonder if I can just pray a prayer there to you just over there. Just Lord, anyone and everyone who has been giving was about to give now. We just thank you again for your faithful, incredible provision in our lives. Even in these challenging times, we declare that our trust and our hope is in you. And as we give, Lord, we do so with worshipful hearts, just with cheerful hearts, Lord God, declaring that our trust is in you. Lord God Almighty, Jehovah Jireh is our provider. Thank you for this, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Thank you. Thank you so much once again, friends. God bless you. Have a blessed rest of the Easter weekend. And um, thank you for staying and having some coffee and comments with us over Facebook. God bless you. Thank you.